Hey y'all, this is Lonnie, just stepping in really quickly to say two things. One, uh, Kelly's smoke detector was chirping a bit during this recording. We did notice it at the time. I noticed it during editing. I tried to edit as many out as I could. Uh, I hope it doesn't bother you too much, but if you do notice it, I want to let you know that Kelly has changed the battery. She is perfectly safe and everything is fine. And um, maybe everybody check the batteries in your smoke detector so we can turn this into like a PSA of sorts. You know, why not? Do a little public good. All right. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Welcome to the End Times from Chipperish Media. I'm a Southern Fried Scholar and human-possessing angel in a nice dress, Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm story expert and grief-stricken demon, Lonnie Diane Rich. And we're here today to talk about the Doomsday Option, Good Omens Season 1, Episode 5. This episode was written by Neil Gaiman and directed by Douglas McKinnon. Agnes would have definitely told me if someone was going to shoot you, so let's stop Armageddon. In the Doomsday option, Crowley rushes to Aziraphale's bookstore to find it on fire, Aziraphale gone, and the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter charred on the floor. He screams at the universe, grabs the book, and hot-foots it out of there. Literally. Aziraphale ends up in heaven and gets yelled at for not having his flaming sword and getting himself discorporated. He decides that he needs to get back to Earth and stop Armageddon, and while possessing humans is usually a demonic thing, desperate times, etc., he jumps into Earth and travels around as an astral projection. He finds Crowley drunk in a bar and tells him to get off his ass and stop this thing. That's a paraphrase, but basically that's it. Shadwell returns from having magically made Aziraphale disappear and is overwhelmed by his own power. Madam Tracy puts him down for a nap and has a seance in which Aziraphale possesses her. And once he explains everything to her and she explains everything to Shadwell, they head out to Tadfield to stop the end of the world. A post-coital Ananthema and Newt discuss what they can do about the end of the world, but Ananthema isn't sure what Agnes wants her to do, and Newt is like, maybe she wants you to have sex again, and ugh, Newt. Castor manages to return back into the world through a telemarketing phone line and he shows up in Crowley's car as Crowley is waiting in traffic, stopped up by a blazing M25. The car bursts into flames and Haster also bursts into flames. Crowley drives the Bentley on fire, but he's rescued by his imagination, which allows him to believe that his car is not on fire. And demonic belief is a powerful thing. Meanwhile, the four horsemen, their humanish forms slowly melting away, arrive at the Tadfield Air Base, ready to release the nuclear weapons. Madam Tracy, Aziraphale, and Shadwell show up at the air base just as Adam and the them show up. Shit's about to go down when Crowley shows up, swagger on one shoulder and badassery on the other, and demands access to the airbase, which he gets when Adam puts all the soldiers to sleep with a Jedi mind trick. All right, so Dr. Kelly Jones, here we are, uh, episode five of Good Omens. Um, what'd you think? I really love the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, Crowley in that bookshop. Oh, I mean, man. you know how much it hurts me to watch a bookstore burn. Oh, I know. Like it is. It is, it is hideous. It is my own personal version of hell. Mm -hmm. But Crowley, so desperate and so angry, you know, and the music that's playing and the way that he walks mm -hmm. out of that place on fire, it's so, so great. I know. Um, and I love Aziraphale at the beginning, you know, yeah. figuring out, hey, angels' powers are a lot more like demon powers than we think. And if they can possess people, I can possess people. Right. And then we get this very delightful innuendo-y, not innuendo-y conversation between them at the bar. And it's oh, so great. Man. 
<laughs> it's all it's all so good. I love when Crowley goes into the bookshop, right? Mm-hmm. And we see how devastated he is at the idea that Aziraphale is just gone. And he says, you killed my best friend. Um, and then he goes, bastards. And I was like, you killed Kenny. You know, um, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> um, but I love that when he's going in and the guy's like, is this your store? And he's like, do I look like I run a bookshop? <laughs> It's so great. Yeah. And when he walks out, uh-huh. you know, and he's 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 so devastated. You know, somebody killed my best friend. And mm-hmm. he but he grabs the book yeah. as a souvenir and he Aww. walks out and he's like, hell with it. I don't care. I'm mm-hmm. gonna do something to save the world. Yeah. And um Queen is singing Somebody to Love in the background. Oh God. Oh, just, God. The, the music on this show is so perfect. It's a, Queen is so perfect. And the thing is that like the idea that anything, you know, left in a car for more than two weeks is mm-hmm. uh, turns into the greatest hits of Queen, you know, um, it seems to me like just kind of like a random joke. But the actual Queen songs, You're My Best Friend, Somebody to Love, Bicycle, everything kind of feeds into this story down to i'm in love with my car yeah yeah the bentley i mean it's like all of queen's music was written for good omens or good omens was written for queen Queen. it's just so perfect it is it's a Um, really nice match Mm -hmm. and there were some little tiny details like i love aziraphale showing up late for armageddon because I, I would be late for Armageddon too. It just speaks to my heart. Yeah. And I love his little pinky ring yeah. that he's wearing. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we just get these little fashion flashes from Aziraphale. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and I really, really love that. And and that angelic commander was so funny. Like <laughs> but, he's under so much pressure. I know. He's like, you were issued a body. Like, do you think we just restock those? He was so mad. <laughs> and I thought that was really great. Yeah. You know? But when um, when Aziraphale comes, you know, to Crowley, kind of in that, no, you know, I don't know what you would call it, discorporated form. Mm-hmm. And Crowley for a second thinks he's seen things because he's very, very drunk. Mm-hmm. And Aziraphale says something about the bookstore and Crowley, you know, really sobers up and, and just with all of this kind sadness, mm-hmm. you know, he says, your your bookshop isn't there anymore. I'm really sorry it burned down. Yeah. And like, he really, really means it, mm-hmm. you know, um, but he saved the book because he loves Aziraphale and, and he tells Aziraphale, wherever you are, I'll come to you. Yes. Oh. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love this. When Aziraphale shows up, afraid I've made rather a mess of things. Did you go to Alpha Centauri? He says, no, it changed my mind. Stuff happened. I lost my best friend. It is so heartbreaking and so sweet. And then, of course, we have this moment where um, where they're talking like, you know, he did. Aziraphale has no body. You know, mm-hmm. he has no like, you know. And then Aziraphale says, pity I can't inhabit yours, angel, demon probably explode <laughs> yeah and i was like yeah you would honey yeah you would baby <laughs> yeah but you would <laughs> but you'd get over it wait 20 minutes it'll be fine <laughs> it's just a whole different kind of fire sugar it is a whole it's different a, kind all of right fire. <laughs> and then when he says we're both gonna have to get a bit of a wiggle on i was like oh my god the next time i have sex i'm gonna have to say that <laughs> It was just so adorable. And there's so much sexual tension with these two. And it's so wonderful and 
God, I just love it. It's so delightful. It is. It's so great. And I, I just love how earnest mm-hmm. Crowley is. Yeah. You know, wherever you are, I'll come to you. And I'm like, yeah, he would. He would show mm-hmm. up in that building. Yeah. Wherever Aziraphale was. And I just love it. Mm-hmm. And But the look on Crowley's face when Aziraphale yeah. says, we just, we got to get a wiggle on. He's like, what, wait, what, wait, this conversation has shifted. Hold on a minute. I didn't know we were going there. Yeah. Like, it's one of those circumstances in which when there's that kind of tension and somebody says something, you're like, what does that mean? Does that mean uh-huh. what I think it means? <laughs> Wait, did you say that the way I heard it? Because exactly. I heard naked. Like that's what I, what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's so, it's so sweet. And I love the two of them together is the most delightful thing in the world. It's so, so great. Um, it's so great. Yeah. But yeah. it makes me sad that we go from great sexual tension to terrible sexual tension yeah with an anthema and newt and like oh mm-hmm. newt saying you know that was my first time well yeah because when you were under the bed during the tornado you said you never even kissed a girl before right. so mm-hmm. yeah I, I think you'd already explained that and an anthema is like i never would have known and i'm like oh come on well no you see the look on her face she's yeah. saying that to be nice you know, because yeah. she has a look on her face is like, that was not good. The anathema and newt stuff is incredibly frustrating because it's so frustrating. Yeah, because he's not he's not competent. He's not, you know, like with her on all of this. He doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, they had sex and it clearly was not great for a number of reasons. It just clearly could not have been great. And the fact that she said, well, I couldn't have, I couldn't tell or whatever with that look on her face. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, it bothered me. No, it bothered me for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because she's, you know, pandering to ego or being nice, but Mm -hmm. it bothered me more than that because no one's sexual debut should be used as the butt of a joke. Right. You know, having sex is not something that is an innate skill set. Like this is something you have to learn and learn what's right for you and for the person mm-hmm. that you're with mm-hmm. and to make a joke of that as if oh this is you know like there's a performative expectation right. and when you're with someone and you know that it's their first time doing anything in that yeah. way then the roles there are different like this is this should be a mm-hmm. supportive co-creation kind yes. of experience and and to sit back as if there's some, you know, judges numbers that you hold up, like you're turning right. a backflip and they're mm-hmm. going to send up a scorecard really bothers me. So it well, bothers yeah. me for Newt, but it bothers me for Ananthema too, because again, mm-hmm. why is she into this guy? I, why I, is she into that? Like, and the fact that it's his first time, like, is not at all a bad thing, but we do have this sense, like culturally, this sense of expectation on men. Mm-hmm. That they are supposed to perform. And the fact of the matter, and the women are supposed to be passive. And the men has to, the man has to make her have a good time rather than her being active in it and being like, here's what you do, you know, which yeah. in, under a bed in the middle of a tornado circumstances are going to be about the whole thing was bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, but this, I, this expectation that men need to, you know, perform perfectly, you know, even on their first time without any training, you know, nobody would expect you to be able to like make filet mignon if you hadn't had any training, you know, so like this sense of sexual performance, this pressure of sexual performance on men is completely like 
unfair and unrealistic. Not to mention the fact that she's, you know, had more experience than him. She should be teaching him. And all of that as the butt of a joke, you know, um, it all of it comes together to just make this relationship distasteful for me in every way. It's so bad. And then Mm -hmm. we follow that with, you know, okay, then they're getting back on task because what do they have, like 35 minutes until the end of the world or something? Mm -hmm. And so, of course, Ananthema is turning to the prophecies. Mm -hmm. And Newt says, you can't let a 400-year-old witch tell you what to do. Yeah. And I'm like, but she can let a man she just met tell her how to live? Oh, absolutely. Right. What is this nonsense? Exactly. And he's saying that because he's like, well, seeing as the world is ending, can we do it again? So let's just, the world's going to end. Let's not do anything about it. But I would really like to have sex again, you know? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, if you can, if you know the world is ending and there's nothing you can do, then all right, have all the sex, have all of it, you know, (laughs) Um, my blessing. But in a circumstance where they have these prophecies and there may be something they can do, the fact that you would like to have sex again is really not the priority here, dude. So calm down, slow your roll, you know. Yeah. Um, so the whole thing, I don't know, is it's it's all weird. And then we get this thing from Anathema, too, where she says, I've spent my whole life trying to figure out what Agnes wanted me to do. And she's never failed me. Sometimes I fail her. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what does that what does that even mean? What are you supposed to do? How are you failing anybody? You know, you're out there in the thick of it, doing what you can to save the damn world. Like, lower those expectations a little bit. And how are you failing, Agnes? So um, so her sense of inadequacy in that moment, when mm-hmm. she is probably one of the most capable people in this story, you know, that I find really irritating. So all of it grates me the wrong way. And it could have been really delightful. It could have been really sweet. You know, mm-hmm. it could have been fun. It could have been that he was like, let me support you. But instead, yeah. he's like, I'm sorry, that book is coming between you and me. So uh, get rid of it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to have some sexual fun with Newt's innate inability to mm-hmm. use technology, like there are jokes to be had. Oh, certainly. There with, mm-hmm. you know, like, hey, Newt, grab that from the bedside table for me and, <laughs> it, you know, spontaneously combust. Like, there, there you are go. jokes that there could have been made. There are jokes to be made, sure. That don't but, have to come at his expense necessarily. Right, as exactly. A, as a person on the first time out, you can't be expected to do everything perfectly on the first time out. First time out, you're just getting used to, like, all the parts, you know, like... <laughs> It takes time. And the idea that you have to be perfect the first time out, it puts this cultural pressure on men that makes them not or feel too insecure to be teachable, you know, because then they'd have to face that they aren't perfect the first time out, whatever. Like, so all of that stuff, I think, is um, I think that culturally we have a lot of stuff that does huge disservice to uh, to sex and men and women in their particular roles with sex, you know. Oh, yeah, everybody. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Sex on yeah. television, generally, just bad. Generally, really bad. Generally, really, really bad. bad. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I think they got right, or at least that I really enjoyed mm-hmm. in this episode, um, I ended up liking the four horse persons a lot more than I thought I was going to. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I really enjoyed Famine. I've, I've liked him, and, and mm-hmm. maybe because I am a shallow, shallow creature, 
because the actor who plays him is just gorgeous. Oh, I can't help yeah. it. Um, but when he goes through the airport security and that same security guard that had talked to Anathema asks yeah. him, you know, purpose of your visit to the UK? Mm-hmm. And he says, I ride to where the end of the world begins. And she's like, <laughs> sounds like fun. <laughs> you know what? I don't think me. it's the first time she's heard that. I imagine I she's heard quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what really surprised me was that there seemed to be genuine camaraderie and respect among yes. the four horse persons. Yes. You know, they're warm and collegial mm-hmm. with each other. They're they're kind of processing their feelings mm-hmm. about what's about to happen. And and when famine says, you know, when he addresses death, he says, Your tea is getting cold, Lord. Mm-hmm. So like there's this honorific among yes. them for, for death, you know, this mm-hmm. very deep respect. Um, and I, I really kind of liked it. I liked it too. I thought it was really good. I also love the design of the motorcycles. Um, oh, yeah. Death's motorcycle looks like a skeleton. It's yeah. so cool. So I really like the way that they designed all of that. Um, they've got all of them meeting up. And then as we move through, you know, we get closer and closer and closer to, you know, the end times. Mm-hmm. They start to disintegrate. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're falling apart. Like you see um, Famine's teeth. Mm-hmm. getting you know really spiny and skeletal and pollution is leaking like oil from their yeah. face yeah. um and war has got blood all over her face like it is it's interesting what they do like they they are undercover and then they gradually become more genuinely themselves but they are in essence demonic you know oh, i mean yeah. they they like work the way that like when you see haster you know, Haster's covered with all that stuff. There was the other guy, uh, Liger, who had like the lizard on his head. There's the one with the flies. There's Beelzebub with the flies. Um, so like the design of all of the demons have these elements that are essentially them, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and I kind of like the way that that design works. And, and as they get closer to Armageddon, they're shedding any semblance of humanity that they've been wearing all of these years and are becoming more genuinely themselves. Yeah. And I kind of like it. I did too. And mm-hmm. did you think famine looks vampiric? Like, yeah. is there a vampire element to those teeth? I, well, yeah. I mean, they were, it wasn't just fangs. They were all right. sharp and spiny, you know? Yeah. 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 That was interesting. And I, I really loved the visual trick they pulled um, when they got to the military base and they made mm-hmm. themselves look like they were in that official vehicle and they were all in the uniforms. And yep. Like, I thought that was really, really interesting. Attention to um, detail. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I loved this one moment with death mm-hmm. um, when someone said, you know, what the hell is going on in here? And death said, or who the hell are you or something like that? Mm-hmm. And death said, I'm neither of hell nor heaven. Mm-hmm. And so it was fascinating to me thinking about death as a neutral party. Yeah, as a neutral party. Yeah. Right. And and when the them square off against the four horse persons, mm-hmm. Adam is paired with death. Yes. And so does that mean that Adam is neutral too? I mean, I think that that he yep. is like I think he has the potential, right, to go yeah. either way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I thought that was really well done in that one mm-hmm. line. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to say, no, death is something bigger. Death and is something older. different. Yeah. Different. Yeah. Like he is something else entirely. Mm-hmm. And he is not on either side. He is the only, aside from Adam, 
he is the only thing that's really not aligned. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, and there are three demons. The th- the other, you know, three horsemen mm-hmm. are demonic. None of the they're not angelic. None of them are angelic, you know? So um so it's kind of interesting uh to see to see death be set apart. He's part of the four horsemen and yet set apart and yet something else, something different, something other. And I think that that opens up a really interesting philosophical space within this story. So, yeah, it yeah. does. And and the relationship between death and time, mm-hmm. right? Because his last line is time is over. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. like when I was thinking about the, the tokens, you know, mm-hmm. he's death is the only horse person who doesn't get a token. He just gets the message. Yeah. But, you know, like a, um, uh, a sand timer, you know what I mean? Like one of those hourglass timers, mm-hmm. right, something right, right. like that could have worked mm-hmm. as a symbol for him. But, yeah. but is he, you know, part of time is time part of death? I don't know. Um, well, the sand timer for uh, the rest of Pratchett's work in which death is a character, right. that's his symbol. Right. Mm-hmm. That's his big thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's just really, really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that ride to the end, we get some more fantastic Crowley. Yeah, that makes me so happy. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, I, I love him in this whole thing. I mean, Haster coming back, you know, just quickly, oh. Haster coming back through a telemarketer as maggots that dissolve all Mm-mm. of these telemarketers in that Mm-mm. office. Um, that was really gross and disgusting. But when he shows up in Crowley's car, you yeah. know. And he's just like, this is it. Hell will not forgive. Like all this kind of stuff. It's so great. And then Crowley's just like, yeah, you know what? And drives into the M25 um, on fire. And it's just, on it's fire. so freaking badass. It's so great. And you you notice how I skipped the entire Haster phone thing. I it did. Just I'm sorry. Me out. Oh my God. It, it is really disgusting. So much. It is really terrible. Um, but I love that Crowley's imagination keeps him alive. Yes. And Haster's lack of imagination is what makes him catch on fire. Yeah. Um, and, and the demonic voice coming through Crowley's radio, I don't know if that's Satan or somebody else. It sounds mm-hmm. like Freddie Mercury to me. Yeah. Saying, you know, <laughs> what you did to the M25 was a stroke of genius, darling. Yes. It was so great. <laughs> it's so great. And that flashback to disco yes. crawley with his yes. slideshow to the demons you know talking about the, the m25, the m25. The it's like, yeah can i get a wahoo <laughs> <laughs> yes you can crowley yes you can <laughs> it's so good and, and you know yeah. he tells the car he's like you are my car mm-hmm. and you are not going to burn yeah and i'm like yeah you know uh-huh. um, but, but i think my favorite crowley line in this episode is when he's flipping through Agnes's book and he just yells, you know, why isn't there an index? (laughs) Damn right. There should be an index. I love this demon so much. Yes. Oh God. No, it's just, it's so wonderful. And I love to, you know, where towards the end, right. Mm -hmm. When he goes into lower Tadfield, Bentley blazing, right. We have that moment with who, you know, the actor is Bill Patterson. The character here is R.P. Tyler. But in my heart, he's Ned Gowan from Outlander. Uh-huh. <laughs> he comes up to Ned Gowan and just wants directions. And they're like, what he wanted to say was, your car is on fire, you know, <laughs> um, and then just gives him directions. 
Crowley shows up at the airbase, gets out of a flaming vehicle, and says, you wouldn't get that sort of performance from a modern car. (laughs) (laughs) I love the love story between Crowley and the Bentley. It's very nice. It's so great. And and every time I hear Queen play, we will rock you. I will always think about Crowley driving that burning car. It's so fantastic. It's so, so fantastic. Um, and, and a little not so fantastic side is the whole Madam Tracy Shadwell. Oh, dear ugh, God. Ugh, All of it is so irritating. It's so bad. And the whole seance thing was just silly. Too long and Over the cares? top. Yeah, it was yeah. just too much. But. The one little quick shot of her hot pink flogger mixed in with all her stuffed animals on her bed was kind of yes. adorable. That was it funny. It is kind of adorable. It is. And, 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 and yeah, some of it's some of it's cute. There are elements of it that are cute. What mm-hmm. I hate is how shitty and disrespectful Shadwell is to her and how she just takes care of him. Yeah. You know, she doesn't she doesn't need him to like, you know, respect her or appreciate her or say thank you for taking care of me when I was freaked out because I believe I have a power that I don't have, you know? Yeah. Um like all of this stuff, there's there's such potential for it to be really cute and fun. Mm-hmm. And it ends up just being this guy has not earned anything that he has. His The thing that he like has this finger that he thinks is all powerful. That is such a like a really accurate metaphor mm-hmm. for everything with Shadwell. And that he thinks he has a competence. He thinks he has abilities. He thinks he has power that he does not actually have. And all he does is abuse this woman. And disrespect her. And she's just like, no, I love you anyway. You know? Like, oh, Um, let me make you dinner. Oh, let me make you dinner. Oh, let me make you... And I mean, there's an element of... When people know each other really well, you know, somebody can be an asshole and the other person is like, I have have a very, very good friend. Like, a very good friend. Like, 30 years we've been friends, right? And he is, deep down inside, like a really sweet dude. You know, like he has this incredibly full heart and he feels things completely. And because of that, he is an asshole to everyone. Like, (laughs) not to everyone. He's very nice to people he doesn't know. Mm -hmm. But if you become close friends with him, it is insult after insult after insult. And I understand it's because he's like emotionally stunted in some ways. But because I have love for him, because I know that like, and I have had situations where if I need him, he's there. Like Mm -hmm. he has always been, you know, Um, and if there's anything I need, like he'll. So he's one of those people that like says terrible things, but in the shit like he's there, you know. So if you have a situation like that where this guy is saying stuff, but he's behaving something else and he's behaving in a way that does things for her or like then I could see building that. I could see that kind of relationship with people who've known each other a long time and she knows that he loves her, you know. And doesn't need from him for him to actually say it because he behaves it, right? You know, right. fine. But they haven't established any of that. There's none of that here. None of, nothing but insults and disrespect, you know? And that is the kind of thing that, like, I, I, I absolutely hate that unearned. And between Newt and Shadwell, these yeah. great women and these loser guys... With unearned dedication and affection and all of this stuff, I mean, the hell is that? Yeah, it's so bad. And mm-hmm. and there are a couple of things in the last episode that 
you know, are better, but we can't. Yes. I mean, we're not there yet. So in we'll, this We'll one, get there. For right now, no, this episode in no. itself. Yeah. yeah. Until mm-hmm. this moment, all Shadwell has done is be an asshole and set a yeah. bookstore on fire. Yes. Like, yes. very, very special corner of hell is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. no, it's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, like, the, the character that really pulled my heart the most this episode uh, might have been Adam. Yeah. Um, I mean, as much as I feel for Crowley with the, mm-hmm. you know, that all of that devastation with the bookstore and Aziraphale, yeah. um, you know, this is when Adam hits the darkest of his dark, you know, and he's mm-hmm. summoning the four horse persons and yeah. his friends break away from him and leave him. But when Dog leaves him, yeah, you know, he finally snaps out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love Pepper telling Adam he's not your dog he's his yeah. own dog and he doesn't like yeah. you anymore because you're really mm-hmm. scary mm-hmm. and and you know when he screams that horrible scream and this child he is still a child is in mm-hmm. so much pain yeah you know but when he falls back to the ground his friends run back to him yeah. and the first thing he says is I'm sorry Yes. You know, but he doesn't leave it with an apology. He tries then to fix things. Like he tries to do something to show that he's sorry. What I love about that moment is that here he is and he gains all of that knowledge. You know, up until then, he wasn't, he didn't know. But once he he has that like heartrending, you know, experience, all that knowledge flooding into him, it's at that point that he can truly choose because he knows what he's choosing and he chooses good. He chooses his friends, mm-hmm. right? He chooses love. Um, and I find that interesting with this contrast to the whole Garden of Eden thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. where Crowley's like, I don't see what's so bad about knowledge. Right. But knowledge was treated as a sin, as a problem, as the thing that created all of the bad stuff, that if these people had just not eaten that apple, had not gained that knowledge, then everything would have been fine. Right. But here we have like the opposite of that, which is it can't be fine until he has that knowledge, until he knows what it is, what the choice is that he's making. Because if you don't have knowledge, you cannot make an informed choice. Right. You know, and the choice is everything. Choices are everything in storytelling. It's all about the choices that the characters make. So I actually really kind of like that. But again, like I, I will sometimes pick up on these things. You know, like in the story. And I'm like, ooh, you know, that's kind of a neat reflection. That kind of, and and when I look for the reflection to be like played out, mm-hmm. it almost never is. It just sits there and they don't really do anything with it. And I'm like, <laughs> you have this one. Like there's this great moment when Crowley walks out of the bookshop, right? Everything's on flame. And he leaves his sunglasses, mm-hmm. right? He drops the sunglasses. And so I'm like, all right. So the sunglasses have been a way of him covering up right? Of him hiding behind something. And now he's no longer hiding. How cool is that? That's an interesting thing. I love that we're, oh, he's pulling out another pair of sunglasses. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, okay. Like, you had it. You had a thing there. It was cool. You don't have a never-ending supply of sunglasses in your car? No, but the point is. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Yeah, you're right, because it would have been like if he had left them off, right? This transformation for him. Yeah, and he would have been owning his love for Aziraphale. Right. 
And we end up taking the glasses off anyway because they burn up in the Bentley, you know? (laughs) So, like, the fact that he reaches into the glove compartment and puts the glasses back on after having taken them off and also after having taken them off at the loss of Aziraphale, Mm -hmm. that he was holding on to those pretenses that that had to do with Aziraphale or protecting Aziraphale. Now that Aziraphale is not there, he doesn't care anymore. He doesn't Mm -hmm. care about anything but Aziraphale. So now that that doesn't matter, he doesn't need the sunglasses anymore. He's not going to hide who he is because it doesn't matter. Like without Aziraphale, it's meaningless, right? So I love all of that, you know, and then he's in the car and he's demonized and then he grabs a pair of sunglasses and I'm like, why? You had it in your hand. You had the cool thing in your hand. Here you have the bad, knowledge is a bad thing at the beginning. The thing that started this whole mess was, you know, eating from the tree of knowledge. And of course, what Crowley did by tempting, you know, um, tempting Adam and Eve. And then, and also not to mention that it's Adam and Eve in the mm-hmm. Garden of Eden with knowledge. And then here we have Adam with knowledge. If you have two characters in the same, you know, world that have the same name, they should reflect on each other, you know? (laughs) And we don't because Adam in the original with the Garden of Eden, he's not even the one who picked up the apple. That was Eve. And of course, Eve gets blamed for everything because woman. So we have all of that. And and Adam is probably the least uh, significant character you know, in that early part, like as far as he's just kind of riding along, he does, he ate the apple with Eve, then he goes off with Eve, you know, there's nothing really there. But here we have Adam, you know, this Antichrist who is, you know, like completely powerful and going to change the world and all like hugely, hugely significant to this narrative. So we have two Adams, both with a relationship to knowledge. And it's just sitting there. It's sitting there. It's a great steak sitting on the counter. Nobody cooks it. They wait two weeks to just throw it away. What is that? It's a beautiful ripe apple that nobody bites. Yes. What is that about? I just don't even, I don't even know. It's right there, people. You had it in your, it was in your hands. It was in your hands. And you're just like, I'm not going to do anything with this. Why? 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 I don't, I don't understand. So yeah, those, uh, those choices kind of make me a little bit insane because mm-hmm. it's so close and you could have this wonderful reflection. You could have something that says something about something. You can have something about Crowley's sense of identity and who he is and why he hides, you know, and why he yeah. doesn't have to hide anymore. All of that stuff is really, really cool. And we're just like, nah, we're not going to do anything with that. Like you make a point of Crowley taking his glasses and dropping them on the floor I shouldn't litter. I'm a demon. Well, I should. And what? (laughs) What? You make the point. You put the lampshade on the glasses as like, hey, this is important, except that it's not important. But hey, look at this. What the fuck are you? Adam and Adam. You could have named that little Antichrist kid anything. What did you name him? Adam. What did you give him? Knowledge. What does that mean? Nothing. (laughs) I... uh, I I don't even with this. So anyway, uh, that's where I am with that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. And meanwhile, I'm just over here like, but I feel badly for this child. Like, (laughs) no, yeah, you're the one with all the empathy. And I'm like, the narrative lines here are not correct. You do not have a taught narrative line. I wanted to see more connection and reflection between Adam and death. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like that whole yes. neutrality of existence, yes. you know, and, and 
and their role in this and the choices that they make. And what they are, that they are outside, that they are other. Exactly. That's cool. Exactly. You know what they did with that, though? Nothing. (laughs) Beautiful steak, beautiful apple. Don't need to do anything with it. Just let it sit there. Not fulfilling its goddamn purpose. Jesus Christ, Gaiman. Gaiman, if you're listening to this... (laughs) Like, I'm going to I'm going to lecture Neil Gaiman. Right. Yeah. Like, he's going to want to listen to me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I would just fangirl and be like, okay, so tell me about Queen. No, I would not. (laughs) I would be like, Gaiman, what is this bullshit? (laughs) Fix it in season two. Fix it in season two, Gaiman. Just listen to this. Fix it in season season two. two. (laughs) Don't hand me this bullshit. I will not accept. Okay, so here's a question. Yes. This is completely unrelated. Just on the the slight, 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 slight chance that Gaiman is actually listening to this. Um, We love you, man, a lot. Um, So (laughs) if if Adam and death are some kind of reflection or connection, does death have an aura? And if he does, is it as big as Adam's? Interesting question. You know, we could have done something with that. Right. We didn't. We didn't. But we could have. have. Anathema's right there. She reads auras. The auras are significant. Wouldn't it have been cool if their auras were almost identical? Or if something happened to their auras when they're in the same place. Oh. Right? What does that mean? Oh, like an eclipse. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so much they could have done with that. Yeah. Yeah. But what did they do? (laughs) Left it on the... Gaiman, I'm telling you, (laughs) you're better than this, man. Gaiman, I do not accept this from you. I do not accept this from the guy who wrote The Doctor's Wife. I do not accept it. (laughs) Better than that, man. Get your shit together. Okay. (laughs) You are hilarious. Um, Yeah, and and total side note, because I love The Doctor's Wife, but my favorite, favorite Gaiman, well, I mean, he wrote two episodes, but he wrote Nightmare in Silver Mm -hmm. um, with Matt Smith as The Doctor. And I love that episode so damn much. Yeah. It is so delightful. Yeah. So this is the second episode uh-huh. with James Corden um, when he plays the guy in the flat and, yes. you know, and that the doctor had been his roommate and then, you know, he gets together with Sophie and then they come back. And this is the little baby storm oh. again. Oh, and it's so great. It's such yes. a wonderful episode, and it delights me to no end. And that has nothing to do with it. Except Omen, but... that Neil Gaiman is better than this. <laughs> better than this. Yes. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> enough of me yelling it. I can't wait for the finale when you take the entire narrative structure apart. Oh, dear apart. God. <laughs> Dear God, that is going to be uh, very seriously we'll, ranty. We'll do a podcast one day <laughs> with like this incredibly problematic qualitative right. research study and I will just like <laughs> come unglued and I will like lose my shit and like take apart the methodology and like tear apart the theoretical framework and I'll be so on fire with anger and you'll just be like, yeah, but I, it made me feel things. <laughs> no, I'll be, I'll be 100% behind you. I will be with you. I will be offended on your behalf. Yes. If it's done poorly, people are better than this. Better than this. Okay, anyway. So what was your favorite adaptive choice? Crowley, Talon, Aziraphale, wherever you are, I'll come to you. Oh, God. Oh, dear God. It melts my heart. Yeah. 
Oh, it, was it so makes me sweet. so happy. So wherever you are, I'll come to you. What oh about you? Um, for me, the uh, the fact that they didn't do Aziraphale popping into a bunch of people before getting to Madame Tracy. I mean, they kept the seance for way too long. They didn't need the yeah. seance at all. Um, now, I would have traded the seance for the evangelical preacher on TV because yeah. That would have been hilarious. It was funny in the book, but it was still a waste of time. We were not going anywhere. It wasn't the narrative. We were working up toward the climax. This is not the time when you take a little aside to make a commentary on televangelists. This is not the time for that. Good fucking God. So <laughs> you are my favorite, favorite story person in the whole world. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so, yeah. So the fact that they didn't waste our time with all of that nonsense, I felt that that was a pretty good adaptive choice there. Um, what's your favorite part? Oh, Crowley in the Burning Bentley with the Queen soundtrack. That's real good. Hands down. Yeah. It's real, real good. Um, I got to say, for me, it's Crowley in the Burning Bookstore. When he's so mm -hmm. heartbroken and so furious, you bastards, you killed Kenny, you, you know. Um <laughs> But it's so like he's so heartbroken that they somebody killed my best friend and they took a Xerophel from him. And the only thing that matters, he loves the world, but he mm -hmm. loves a Xerophel more. And it yeah. is so wonderful and so touching. And I just love it. It's so sweet. I would run into a burning bookstore for you. I would run into a burning bookstore for you too, honey. And I would, and I would carry pissed, out as many books as I could. Pissed if somebody killed you. Just saying. Yeah, right? I would oh be my very God. angry. I would be very upset. Best, best friends. Best, best friends. <laughs> to join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Dine Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag Chipper End Times. Welcome to the End Times and everything Chipperish Media produces is made free and ad free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to ride to where the end of the world begins. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. You can also show your support for Welcome to the End Times by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review or telling your friends about the show and chipperish media or being in hell's bad books. Not that hell has any other kind. We will be back next time with the final episode of Good Omen Season 1, the very last day of the rest of their lives. Until then, if you've got to go, go with style. <laughs> <laughs>